Well, hey there, hi there. Welcome to Generation Tech. I'm Todd Brinker. How you doing today, Dad? I'm doing great. I'm... Yeah. <laughs> so we, we kind of started talking like pre-show, uh, and I, we had to go like, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's save this for the show. We were talking yeah. about the, um, was it Antikythera machine? Yes. That's and, what they gave it. It's a name. Uh, it, uh-huh. Actually, it was a, a very old thing invented by the Greek world when they were in prominence. And, the, and that turns out that this there was a timeline on one of the articles regarding this device. And apparently it goes to back to about 350 B.C. Yeah. So that gets pretty old. Yeah, and it's uh, a medical uh, a metal device that has gears and wheels and turns in it, and they found it in some pieces, all rusted together on the bottom of the ocean in an old ship. And for the longest time, they didn't know exactly what it was. But recent technology has allowed them to do... Um, uh, Deep scans, X-rays, uh, MRIs, whatever you know, they're using current technology to scan inside the device, and they found lots of gears in there. And fourteen, uh, to be exact. And and they have since um, you know counted the teeth on the gears, and uh, and in fact, one gentleman has even built a replica of it, a working replica, and it turns out that it is kind of a clock but it's pretty amazing in that it tells you the not only like the phases of the moon but also when there's going to be eclipses when the um uh the location of the planets at given points in time in relation to each other um uh it accounts for leap years it is very complex pretty interesting thing and it's all made of bronze of course because that's was this low what they had metals that they could yeah make to put together and, and build things with and uh, and the other thing that of course is that this sort of came after the uh, mathematicians and philosophers of the day they mentioned in the article uh, Plato Aristotle Archimedes mm-hmm. uh, uh, and the whole business of Mathematics, uh, probably the biggest name there was Pythagorean, Pythagorean mm-hmm. uh, culture, uh, because yeah. they have had uh, trigonometry at least. No yeah. Well, it seems like the current term. hypothesis that Archimedes <laughs> was probably the one who built this, because there was some writing that he did that alluded to something of this effect. And yes. so that's kind of what they think but obviously they don't have anything directly tying him to it at this point. But it was found back in the 50s, um, and it's just in the in the 2000s that they started doing the 3D mapping uh, in order to see what was actually inside of it and how it was built so you could get a, a feel for um, you know how it works. And uh, I tell you what, some of the mechanicals on this thing are absolutely genius, you know, like... Um, uh, they account for the variances in having non-circular um, orbits. Orbits, yeah. in and you know, and it's like that's for something that was done, you know, twenty three, twenty four hundred years ago, maybe twenty five hundred years ago, to be able to account for that level of accuracy, you know, and this is just based on their, vi- you know, what they're seeing, right? They're just duplicating what they see in the sky, what the planets do. Uh, yeah. 
you know. And of course, they, they didn't have all the planets that we have today because they didn't have uh, telescopes, and so uh, they had the five most visible planets. They could see Mercury and Venus and us, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Obviously, us they didn't think of as necessarily the same, but uh, but so it was Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the five uh, planets that can be seen with the naked eye. Yeah, yeah. But then, obviously, they noticed that uh, each night that the planets were moving across the sky and mm-hmm. figured out their directions of the orbits and whatever from from those observations. So anyway, it's a, it's yeah. a pretty fascinating story. Uh, the device itself is, uh, along with two other pieces that are smaller that were mm-hmm. found on the same ship, are all in a museum in Greece, in Athens, Greece, right now. Right. And so, uh, uh, anyway, yeah, it was yeah. interesting that you found these articles because I had just watched a documentary, and I don't remember if it was on the History Channel or where it was, but um, it was, uh, you know, I didn't make. I mean, it was fascinating to watch because they talked about the efforts to to X-ray it and the efforts of one gentleman to build a working model of it. You know, using what we know about it to try to build a functioning device to see if we could, you know, get a better handle on exactly what it does and how it does it. And uh, and that's a pretty interesting uh, story in itself. You know, you're basically trying to unfold this puzzle of something that was built thousands of years ago and we have pieces of it and we have pictures of some of the innards of it and then you've got to kind of figure out how does it all go together um, and he built a pretty interesting looking working model too now that's this is about as early in technology as you can get <laughs> exactly yeah yes. generation it. tech goes back many generations today <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal, you know, but I think, you know, we have a tendency to think of olden times as like old and people weren't, you know, as smart and people weren't as, you know, in tune as we are. And it's like they're the same as we are. They were just people living at a different time. You know, they, they had all the same abilities to to imagine and think and, and, and process things. And yeah, certain things had not yet been discovered, but that doesn't mean that they, you know, they weren't ingenious people who figured stuff out. You know, they don't. They didn't have the kind of like worldwide communication that we have now. So, you know, some guy has an amazing idea. It doesn't necessarily spread around the world. It might spread to the people in his town, and then it disappears because you know it's gone. Yeah, but when you say process things, you know, mm-hmm. of course their uh, processing was very slow. So it's hand calculations all the way. You know, uh, so that's why they were starting to instrument and build devices to do mm-hmm. some of these. Uh, processing or calculations quicker and that's what these this type of machine did it allowed you to uh, uh, capture uh, basic physical phenomena right in a, in a way that lets you uh, get a result pretty quickly if you're because the idea is that they were moving around on ships in the early uh, shipping days and they were afraid to go out too far out on the horizon get lost and go off the edge of the earth because they weren't sure what was out there right so they they were navigating between the islands there were a lot of them around greece uh and so uh they wanted to be sure that they got their headings correctly uh, by using the uh stars and whatever yeah Uh, 
Yeah. Well, when I said processing, I wasn't talking about. The, I was just saying that you know anything that we can do mentally or build physically, they could have done too. They're just like us. It's just you know they yep. just. It's not like they were some subspecies of human that, that was stupid. You know they they That's were true, us. Yeah. They were us yeah. and and absolutely genius and stupid. They had the whole mix, just like we do now. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is just an example of the genius, you know. It's problem solving, right? We've got guys that are going out where they can't see uh, you know, where they came from. They can see the other land that they're near, but they can't see where they came from, and so can we can we find something that we can track up in the sky that helps us know where we are? And so this was one of the steps towards doing that, you know. And I mean, quite frankly, up until a few hundred years ago, that was, you know, the, looking at the stars was how people navigated when they were out on the ocean, you know? Yep. Uh, right. Well, they, they still uh, use uh, uh, as backups mm-hmm. uh, in airplanes. Most, uh, a lot of navigators learn how, in nav school, how to use uh, stars for navigation as, yep. as a backup if things fail, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, no, that's, you know, the, how, how to orient where you're at, right? Orienteering is a thing, and uh, yeah. and uh, it's a survival skill for sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. One article that I had had uh, some interesting side stories, and one of them that I liked was how there was this big study somebody did about uh, as the population grew and expanded and people populated islands further away from uh, other places – Oftentimes they couldn't survive on these islands because there was no ability to grow crops. They were basically rocky terrain, and so mm-hmm. they had to have shipping lanes. So it was the early uh, method of where grain came from, and, and of course it was transported by ships. Uh, and there were lots of different ships from different places that brought in agricultural products to these mm-hmm. places uh, so that they could inhabit them. And so... I found that interesting as well, uh, because along these uh, shipping lanes, they found several old ships, not just the one that this device was on, but other ships were on, and they, they in the story, tied it all together, how they uh, uh, traveled, uh, well, where, they, where the grain could possibly be grown. They have a, a satellite image showing the, the tillable soils and larger uh, earthen places and mm-hmm. uh, and then how they moved the, the stuff to these uh, unsustainable islands and some of them are pretty large mm-hmm. uh, where there's just very few places you can grow anything much more than a garden size plot yeah uh, and they tell that story as well so that's that's just a very practical thing mm-hmm. if you're going to inhabit some place you got to be sure you provide the things necessary for survival you know yeah yeah farm farming science has to adapt to the uh to the landscape and say how can we grow our food here otherwise yeah, we can't so, stay right so anyway i like that that ties it all into why these technologies were were important and uh and how they supported uh the economies and and the other things that people wanted to do in those days. Right. So, like a, they're, they're doing logistics. They're like a modern-day UPS. Right. right. <laughs> the Amazon of its day, right? <laughs> there you go. 
place your order by uh, sending a scroll on a ship to uh, to the dude who grows what you need, and you know, months later, it'll show back up, and or or the, the either the product shows up or you know a an agreement shows up, and you have to sign that and send a bag of gold, and, and then months later, then your stuff shows up. It's like yeah. <laughs> It's Amazon. <laughs> so, anyway, speak, speaking of today's technology, I yeah. sent you one little blurb here. Here on what Netflix really fears, and it's not HBO. So, and what that really kind of comes down to is, as uh, streaming technology comes on, it's uh, in fact you see ads all the time on commercial uh, or on various channels like uh, ones that I see advertised a lot or on HGTV about other streaming shows that you can get now that right. are specialty things and the business of uh, viewing shows uh, of all types uh, is trying to move us all to the streaming market there, therefore they can charge you and uh, <laughs> yeah charge you directly uh, yeah sell you some shows because ultimately uh, the TV structure that we have uh, is going to die is just destined to because it costs too much money to maintain all that type of stuff in order to send shows out uh, yeah and so uh, uh, it's, well, re- you know remember that Netflix initially was a a you know rent a DVD from us and we mail it to you and when you're done right. you put it in the mail to send it back and they they pretty quickly launched streaming because that was what they really wanted to be in the first place. That thus the name Netflix, um, but the technology didn't support it for a lot of people to the home. And as people's internet got faster and more uh, prevalent, then they kind of switched over to that, and then they dropped the DVD rental piece of it. But they've been pushing real hard in the last few years to create more and more of their own um, uh, stock, more inventory of shows because. They quickly discovered as they were doing this that um, that there's lots of companies out there that have lots and lots of back catalog of shows that if they start streaming that will become more interesting to most people than Netflix because Netflix was renting all their shows initially. They would rent a show from Warner Brothers or from Universal Studios or whatever, you know, and the, the movie houses. And... Uh, and so now if you watch Netflix, a vast majority of what they do is stuff that they have themselves have produced in order to, A, keep the money in-house because they don't have to pay somebody else for it, but B, ensure yeah. that they will then be able to have it there and available to watch for somebody later. Because Netflix but, to this day, there's there's um, if you follow them, there's places where you can track to see what's new on Netflix this month and what's leaving. Things that they had this month but that will be gone next month. And so if you want to watch it, watch it now. Yeah. Well, or you can take it the Amazon route. Uh, it's not quite the same, but the, the products, in fact, uh, somebody did a study uh, when the Internet thing first started going and said that you, you really need to make everything available all the time because there's always somebody interested in stuff that's, that's not well, and that's the that's the point that, that, selected, that you know? when Netflix rents something from a company in order to broadcast it on their on their platform or make it available on their platform they do it for a period of time which means that things are expiring so that's why they want their right. own content because then they can make it available to everybody on time or all the time right. rather and so i mean that's yep. the point is that they they have been pushing real hard 
you know, I mean, there's shows on there that people like to go see, right? You know, um, for a long time on Netflix, you could watch um, uh, the old TV show Friends for people who liked Friends. You know, there's 10 years of that that show when it was on television, and it's there. You can go watch any episode you want, except that uh, when the company that owns Friends, which uh, is, I think, NBC... Uh, got really into streaming and launched NBC online, and then they relaunched themselves as the Peacock Network, so you can get Peacock Network online. They took it back. They said, "Okay, we're not going to renew it. So when your when your rental expires this time, we're going to keep it. So now that if you want to watch Friends online, you have to go there, you know. And yeah. people who want to watch Friends online will go there. You know, it's not that hard to download that app or go to that website and stream it. So." Yeah. Yeah, you know, they I I think that, you know, they also have the the unfortunate position of being the company that absolutely relies on this for their entire income. Right. They're battling against yeah. a whole bunch of companies who do this as a side gig to their primary means of income. Which well, and, and puts you at a disadvantage. Goes, and time as time moves on, their whole business is very easily replicable by somebody with the money. You know, right. they, you can just go out and buy it and be a, a new net, a copy of Netflix. You know, right. Compete, compete well, I mean, that's a, Apple has rebuilt it from the ground up. Amazon has pretty much done that with Prime. You know, they're, they're looking at, at Netflix and saying, we can do that. You know, HBO, while it's still a cable network, HBO Max, their streaming thing, is has been a major competitor. But, but you know, and, and I'm not sure I necessarily agree with the assumptions in this in this uh, article, because I think that their fear is really not, yeah, maybe it's not just HBO, it's HBO and all of the other streaming media that's now becoming available. That's right. Yep. You know, and there's lots of it. I mean, um, you know, not everybody has Apple TV Plus, but it's not exclusive to people who have Apple hardware, and they've got some phenomenal shows on their on their network. It They're really entertaining. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, and they gave it away for free for like a year, so, you know, and it's five ninety nine. It's it's you know I mean, I'm sure they'll bump the price up over time, but it's much less expensive than Netflix. So, yeah. you know, you look at that and you go, hmm. You know, yeah. is it? And quite frankly, you know, in fact, I was just talking uh, talking this week with uh, family and said, you know, I really don't watch Netflix very much anymore. Most of the shows that I go to stream. Uh, are other places and uh, sort of hinting that maybe we should not be paying for Netflix. <laughs> and w- one family member in particular, a very important family member who happens to be the closest family member to me, <laughs> said, but that's the one I watch. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that's why we still have TV. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I yeah. could do without TV. Mostly. If it was yeah, if it was up to me, I would just say yeah, do away with regular broadcast television, and and I'll just watch streaming stuff. Um, the only thing that I still like, and it's when when football season comes around, I have the uh, the package through Directv, and it's the only place you can get it for another year. Uh, it's the uh, all the NFL games, and yeah. being being a Green Bay Packer fan. Um, this that way I can watch the Green Bay games every Sunday because otherwise I can't. They're you know they're on maybe three or four times a year. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, and yeah, they're or, set. Or you, or you could change your loyalty, Todd. Oh, I could be disloyal, wouldn't it? 
then I could I could I could switch and be a Rams fan here, you know, in L.A. or the greater Los Angeles area. Uh, Rams and Chargers are here, so most of their home games are broadcast because they I, uh, I, don't I fail to sell out. And went and went through that until I could say, "Gee, I I've got several favorites. I had probably five teams that I sort of followed for period there because you know once you start following a team, you don't want to lose track of them. You know, right? <laughs> well, and that's the nice thing about this is I can do that. Um, although it's funny, I do I do uh, recall that like when they're not playing. On, on d- during football season, I tend to put on. Um, it's a channel that's not actually part of that package that I could get other places called the Red Zone Channel, and the Red Zone Channel basically just follows every game that's going on at that moment in time, and they have uh, uh, an announcer kind of telling you, oh, you know, they've got f- the screen divvied up into four and sometimes six different subscreens and he'll jump between them if something's happening in this one anybody who's getting ready to score you know if they're out in the middle of the field then he doesn't pay much attention right you know and if something happens while you're on one screen and on a different screen then they'll show it to you a few seconds later and say okay this one's not live but this just happened you know yeah it's 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 like taking what used to be the follow-up sportscast of the events of the day you know and right but doing it live but yeah. doing it right while it's happening, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, the guy who hosts it, you know, I mean, he's got to be on his toes because you're kind of paying attention to, uh, you know, I'm sure he's got a producer in his ear and there's, you know, multiple people watching so that they can tell him, you know, hey, this happened here, this happened there, so that he can kind of do it. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of a frenetic day for him because he's, you know, basically bouncing back and forth between every game going on. But it's, it's you you only see all the interesting good parts. You don't see the the you know the second and three run at the 50 yard line but you do see the the you know we're on the 15 and you know we fake left and throw right and touchdown (laughs) yeah (laughs) so yeah so you can kind of follow everything all at once anyway that was uh kind of moving on in terms of technologies i do have the uh, Tim Cook uh, sort of a almost a pre-announcement of his retirement, but everybody's been aware that he's getting of age and and he's getting uh, the article said his last big payment or whatever it was since he yeah. became CEO. Yeah, he just uh, so got seven hundred and fifty million dollars, um, and he was already a billionaire. So this probably makes him a multi-billionaire now. Yeah, so <clears throat> he, he's kind of thinking about it because he says he wants one more product before he steps down so now well not one more product one more category yeah product yeah, category yeah a major so. new product category so right. so it's yeah you know it's yeah he he wants to do one more splashy thing before he goes you know this is very apple in the way that they do it in that um you know and and i guess in uh yeah in 2025 um He's he's supposed to get another like vesting that will come out, and I've heard some people say that you know app, very Apple like I mean, he doesn't need the money that he may step down before that if the product comes out that it'll be based on a product cycle and not on you know I'm going to hang in there until I get this extra check you know um, yeah, be, yeah because that's very you know that's just he, his he's style been beyond worrying about money a long time you know right exactly um, you know and I think he's like sixty. One sixty-one, so it's not like yeah. he's you know, in being forced into retirement or anything. It's just he'll he'll go when he's ready. But what but what I was going to say is that that 
you know, Apple tends to sort of start to talk about something years before it happens when it's with the executive office and even the executive vice presidents. They'll start talking about a year or two before he'll be doing, you know, he'll talk about this and he'll talk about it or he'll just mention it as an aside. It'll just come up every once in a while. And then when they do start to make the change, it'll be like, oh, he's not leaving, but he's going to assign some of his responsibilities to this guy, you know? And then <laughs> then he's assigned some of his responsibilities to this guy. And then, okay, he's decided he's not going to be the CEO, but he's still going to be the chairman. So he's going to stay as the chair, but he's going to now give, you know. Right. And so, although it was interesting was, with the, is the conversation around, well, who are the people that are, you know, lining up? I mean, right now, they've got a guy, um, um, Jeff, I'm blanking on his name, the chief operating officer. Uh, but he's like, a year or two younger than Tim. So, you know, he maybe isn't the obvious person, although that's the position that Tim was in before he became CEO, right. as chief operating officer. Right. So, yeah. anyway. So, you know uh, that somebody somewhere has like a, in case of emergency, open this envelope, right? That they've discussed with yeah. the board that says if uh, something happens to Tim, here's the pecking order, here's the guys who... Yeah. who Anyway, the, the, the article for, focused more on the pro, new product category uh, speculation, you know, which they, one was a car, of course, and, they, and then they said, well, that's probably too far out. And probably closer in is something to do with the, uh, with the Apple uh, uh, glasses, you know, when, and whatever that does. Right. Uh, I, I, and I guess you'd call that a major product category because well it's yeah it doesn't exist now so it's you know it's it's not like it's a new version of a phone that we've already all got right it's it's a brand new thing um you know i'm not sure i agree with that though in that that you know we say the app the, the car is too far out i you know everything i'm hearing is saying the car is you know five to seven years Yeah. yeah you know and so i can i can see him saying because that's a big splash you know, the glasses yeah. will be a big thing too, but but the car is the car a big is thing. Yeah, it's yeah. bigger, and and that's something that has that did not pre-exist him being CEO, right? That is something right. that has been worked on, you know, it, since his tenure. And so I can see him wanting to to see that through to its release and saying, "Hey, this is my my swan song is this cool thing." Jeff Williams is the name of the guy I was trying to think of. By the way, he's the chief uh, operating officer. Um, yeah, you know. But, uh, you know, and there's a lot of people who have talked about like Craig Federighi because he seems to be the most um, dynamic standing on stage, you know, up there presenting. But that's not the same skill set, because <laughs> if you're looking for dynamic on stage, that ain't Tim Cook. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a small part of being a CEO. Right. <laughs> That's just to yeah. introduce the other guys. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's basically MC, right? Well, at least it is as Tim does it. When uh, when uh, uh, Steve Jobs did it, Steve it was I, I was yeah. the ringmaster. I was the center. I was the show. But uh, right. that's not Tim. He and he well, and kudos to him for recognizing it. Right? He's like, yeah, this isn't right. me. We're going to do this differently. There's other people who can come up here and talk. So, yeah. but anyway, uh, in the arena of uh, uh, new car automation. There's uh, something they just uh, bought. I forgot what it was. Had to do with car technology. 
Mm. Well, the latest rumor I saw was that they're now part. The, uh, that they're going to be partnering with Toyota instead what? of. Uh, they had at one point been talking about possibly uh, Hyundai, and I'd heard one person say that uh, that there had been talks with BM or Volkswagen. My guess is Apple's talked with just about everybody. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know. Anyway, uh, that that's kind of fascinating, and you know. I, the article sort of implied it's at least a year out, probably two or three, but yeah, that, that's more things to talk about in the news. Uh, yeah. One of, one of the news items that I, that struck me as a big deal, uh, is because, Oh, 10, 15 years ago, uh, is when I retired. And even prior to that, I did a lot of work in the business of making, uh, hardened electronic parts. Now that's a specialty within electronic parts, mm -hmm. but I was close to the parts business, and the technology of hardened electronics parts was probably a generation before the current ones, because in order to, uh, uh, at least the technologies used to make something by hardened, what I meant, or what we meant as an industry, because I was in the Department of Defense, are things that can withstand high levels of radiation and still function. They didn't burn out. Uh, whereas in the commercial world, you know, it's a, for devices like a phone or something. So if it gets burned out because of radiation, it's no big deal. I can sell them another one, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you're burning your phone out by radiation, you've got bigger problems than phones. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it does mean that they're more vulnerable to that phenomena. Uh, but anyway, uh, this article says, uh, keeping Moore's Law alive. Now, Moore's Law was one where uh, every generation of a part basically got smaller. I was involved in this uh, semiconductor or chip. Well, actually, that it, it, it smaller is how they, they dealt with the problem in a large sense, but it was Moore's Law was that you would double the processing power uh, with each successive generation of technology. Yes, and that, had, had, and that came about as a result of the parts being yeah. closer together and less yeah. delay time. Well, it's getting more and more processors on the chip, right? So if a chip right. with 10 processors uh, can do a certain number of, of uh, calculations per minute, then one with 20 processors can do twice that. And that was so, – so you keep doubling, and at some point, either you've got chips the size of a car or you need to find a way to make the chip smaller, all the parts on the chip smaller, in order to keep it as a reasonable working size. Well, anyway, uh, just this last year, we finally got to sort of the holy grail in that we got a complete system on a chip referred to as the M1 processor, at least at Apple's house, so that it got a complete real computer on the chip, including the memory, all the controllers, you know, the whole shebang is on yeah. this one device, and therefore it ran runs a lot faster than uh, previous uh, versions and they've usually measured these devices by uh, millimeters when I was first involved with them they were uh, millimeters apart between components uh, and mm -hmm. then got down to you know nanometers and now we're down to uh, what is it three to five nanometers yeah something like that yeah and uh, by, by by comparison um, this is uh, hundreds of times smaller than the width of your hair. So yes. this stuff is very, very tightly packed. <laughs> very, now, very now, tiny. 
Now, now back when in, in the day when they talked about Moore's Law, everybody was really concerned because you could project out ahead and say, we don't know how we're ever going to go beyond this because, man, the technology, is, technology to fabricate. Yeah. These how do we make something that little? Yeah. Just wasn't there. Yeah. Well, well and the other concern was if you make little um, uh, small little lines of metal on a surface that you're going to run current through, that if they're too close, the current will just jump over to the other line. And so we can't control electricity going across these things that are that closely packed in. That's right. Well, it turns out that we're very close, or, or they are already using it. I forgot just where it is, but the, they call it yeah. the $150 million machine. Yeah, that it's in Connecticut. Is what is what actually makes the uh, the new technology, the smaller and smaller chips, possible. And right. So uh, Moore's law that they had originally projected to be at an end at this point in time is now been being extended mm-hmm. to uh, kind of start over. Yeah, so it's, it's a, a new methodology called extreme ultraviolet lithography, um, and lithography is the process of printing on something using two materials that don't attract each other. So they don't stick. It's like oil and water is one way it's done if you're printing in the newspaper industry. There's lithographic printing presses. And so um, you put a design onto a surface that it won't stick to, and then you press that surface up against something, and the design is now transferred to the thing that it sticks to. And that is how they're now taking the design that they're putting onto a lithographic uh, surface and pressing it onto a silicone chip. And uh, this new machine, the company is called ASML. It's a Dutch company, and they're building it in a clean room in Connecticut. And they apparently have uh, one of the machines working, and they're going to make more. So this is something that we'll be able to uh, expand upon. by the way, they're each roughly the size of a bus and cost a, a mere $150 million. But, you know, if you're if you're in the business of, of trying to get more onto a chip and you can, as a result of that, sell, more, you know, much more of what you sell, um, it might be worth that investment to, to buy some of these things from this company. Um, apparently, TSMC, which is Taiwan... Uh, what are they called? It's uh, Taiwan something. Taiwan Sorry. Semiconductor. Sector. I don't know what the MC, something company. Anyway, they're the company that, they're the foundry that makes the chips that Apple designs. And so, you know, if one of the things, actually they're one of the leaders in terms of having been able to shrink the die size and, and how, how small they can print onto um, silicon wafers. And... You know, they, I know, are one of the companies that are very interested in this because it allows them to put more on a chip, which means that then, you know, we can get faster and more capable processors, you know, on our watch, mm-hmm. much less our phone. You know, something as small as our watch can have a processor that's more more capable. Yeah. You know, it's funny because we've talked about in the past how it's amazing that our phones are much better and much more capable computers than the first home computers that you and I had. When you think about it now, our watch is much more capable and better computers, has more memory, more processing power than the standalone computer that we bought back in, uh, you know, 1987. And and, and for our viewers, uh, I worked with the first sort of home computer that you could build as a kit, even before you could get uh, 
any kind of working computer, you could buy them as a kit. So they were hobbyists. Yep. Bought these Mitz machines. Alter 8800. Yeah. And I had that in my home and uh, built some software uh, that supported the chip. And, uh, and Todd... Mm-hmm used to like to play games on it yeah well i mean i played a game on it but i mean i was it was the first computer i got an opportunity to play around with you know i mean uh it uh, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot it could do quite frankly at that at the early on you know um i mean you you wrote the assembler for it and uh you know uh what later became or, or right then was becoming microsoft wrote the basic language for it so there was some some programming environment on it so that then people could actually start creating software for it and it yeah. wasn't that long after that then there was you know a, a, a pretty wide swath of other people building computers that were similar to that before it sort of all settled down into uh yeah there, uh, there were at you know, least PCs or and maybe three maybe three other manufacturers that basically modeled theirs based on the Altair yeah the sprung Altair up pretty the first, quickly the first one out there so yep but anyway it was a it was a fun time when computer clubs uh, sprouted everywhere for people that had some of these mm-hmm. early computers. Yeah, I know one that you focused on for a while and had a, a good circle of friends that got together and talked about it with a, in a, your club was the uh, Radio Shack color computer, the TRS-80 color computer. Um, yeah. And that was a you know very advanced in those days for some of the things that it could do compared to some of the other computers. Um, the one that seemed to really take off like like lightning and became very popular to to the world was the Commodore sixty four of those early computers. Um, yeah, had to have that, one of those too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We both had one of those. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was interesting because for those of you who don't know, you basically the computer itself was built into a keyboard. So what you saw was a keyboard, and that was it. Yep. And then you ran a cable out of the keyboard to plug into your television set. So that's how you had a screen. And so you had a keyboard and a screen, and uh, but, but it was it was what you'd have to call a fairly big box keyboard. So underneath, oh yeah, it was a couple inches thick, you know. Oh yeah, it, it was probably three inches thick in the back, and and you know an inch and a half thick in the front. So it was kind of angled. Uh, so it was not a tiny device, but but still pretty amazing that you know that the the all of the cooling for the mechanism was built into that. It had uh, some you know ports on the back of it as well as a slot for you to stick in car, uh, uh cartridges so you could uh there was i think the idea was that they were going to also sell it as a game machine so that you could compete against like atari and and uh and you know those guys and uh maybe some early nintendo i think they actually predated nintendo but uh uh i don't know that they ever sold a ton of cartridges although we had one we really liked which was the Comal programming language on a oh, cartridge. I love that. Stick I it in the back language. of your Commodore 64, and now you've got a uh, yeah, a pretty interesting uh, early programming language. Why don't you talk a little bit about Comal? Well, at the time, uh, there were uh, structured lang- programming languages was getting to be a big thing, uh, and that meant that uh, uh, basically <coughs> you had the ability to organize your program so that it was a little bit more readable than uh, earlier languages, uh, <coughs> which sometimes were pretty cryptic. Uh, <laughs> not, not that it was basic, but uh, it, it had some of the, the other features that were uh, 
let's see, what, what I'm trying to remember the, the other languages that were better known, really, than Cole. Right, well, Pascal was, was coming on really big, That's and this one. was early on of the, uh, you know, the, the military had just started pushing Ada around that same time, too, I think. Right, yeah, I, uh, Pascal, I don't know why I couldn't think of that. Yeah, I know, you I, were I a taught, big Pascal fan. Yeah, I taught several courses at uh, uh, junior college, on Pascal, that was uh, really in demand at the time. So uh, I took a job and and enjoyed teaching that. But uh, you know, at the same time, the, re- the the main reason that I really liked that Colmall it was a cartridge that came with a Commodore 64, and it, right. they had integrated it into a very good editor, so mm-hmm. that right in, in online you could. Uh, yeah, the very, beginnings very, of what we would call an integrated development environment these days, right? Yes, yes. It was so easy to use and to put together a program rapidly, mm-hmm. and it allowed you to do graphics programming as well. Uh, uh, so it, it preceded Visual Basic, which Microsoft finally came out with, and of course was a much bigger success because they 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 were well, it was on the PC model computer rather than on the Commodore. Right, yeah, it was ba- it was on a computer that was more popular by a long shot, and that's that's the main difference, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I yeah. almost went out and bought a Commodore sixty four much later just to, to get uh, that Comal cartridge and still have one. Right. I so- I sold it for very little. I mean, I almost gave it away, and right. uh, actually the price was increasing <laughs> later. It was mm-hmm. you know today today you can't buy it for what it was. <laughs> cost new back when in the day when it was a popular machine because it was a three or four hundred dollar machine at the time and now you know they're in museums or somewhere else about the only place you can find them yeah well it's how it depends on how long you want to hold on to something right there's a there's a holding cost involved as well it takes up space you know and when you're and when you're moving like i was you, you can't keep dragging this stuff around with you you know right yeah. Well, the thing I always liked about it was that it had built into the programming environment um, uh, sort of the similar to, uh, if, if people remember the Logo programming language, it had uh, sprites built into it. Oh, or yeah. uh, I think Logo yeah. called it Turtle Graphics. But it was the, uh, uh, you know, little, um, uh, I think they were, I want to say 16 by 16, but I don't even think they were that size. But um, small, like, image space that you could then design and then say, okay, now take that, that image and move it around. And there was ways to identify collisions between sprites and stuff. So it made it very easy to create games um, well, and, and, uh, and doing you know, they, physical things on screen. They were somewhat like uh, what are referred to as GIFs these days, which is a file format for a small image Yeah, uh, that, that, that can be turned into a movie. That, you know, I think yeah. 16 frames and it repeats. Yeah, except like that, that most people who, who are involved with GIFs these days I think of them as they, as they exist today, which is literally like photographs right. that are animated, small animations. And these were small right. animations, but they were, uh, you know, these you were 8-bit eight, graphics. <laughs> you could move them around on the screen, and they were 8-bit right. graphics. But what was nice is the language had had structures in place for you to identify you know, if something passed in front of something else or behind something else or whether they, you know, there was a collision if they co-occupied the same pixel on screen. Nice. And so you could, 
then you know use that information to manipulate those those sprites around the screen. It was just it was kind of a neat thing that was added in that had not been in sort of previous stuff. They actually had right. a language that was thinking about graphical displays, and that and was because of and because yeah. of that collision thing, shoot 'em up games immediately became popular. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was very much the beginning of of um, understanding that computers could be gaming platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, Komal. Uh, it was uh, uh, originally developed in Denmark by mathematics teacher Borg R. Christensen. Borg Borg. I don't. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name there. Uh, yeah, it was originally uh, running on a Data General Nova twelve hundred computer in nineteen seventy two, but uh, uh, they yeah, say it I, took off on the Commodore. I, I just got a message from uh, Doug and Reagan, who are visiting supposedly right. Wednesday, saying, "Can we FaceTime with you all right now?" <laughs> Tell them no. You're working. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we've gone 45 minutes. If you just want to call it a day today, why don't we do that? And you talk to them, um, and uh, we'll come back and talk about more stuff next week. It is a holiday. We'll take it. We'll take a short day. Okay, that sounds good. I think All right, we'll do that. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate your support. If you like listening to our show, please be sure to uh, to uh, give us a good review. Give us a five star review somewhere. And if you don't like the show, then pretend I didn't ask. Don't ever listen to us again. But tell your friends they might like it. <laughs> thanks for joining oh. us. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. Bye.